Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Slate podcast, Marin vs. Cedar, Ring of Fire, The Onion Radio News, The Limbaugh Lie of the Day, The Daily Show, The Unger Report, On the Media, and The Young Turks. Right about now, most businesses are trying to work out how their customers are likely to respond to the recession. Looking back to the last really nasty recession, the early 1980s, isn't much help for low-cost airlines, cell phone companies, Internet retailers, producers of organic and fair-trade food, and many other businesses barely imagined at the dawn of the Reagan era. The economy has simply changed too much since then for experience to be a reliable guide. In the United Kingdom, we're blessed with tabloid newspapers to explain what's going on. Apparently, sales of aphrodisiacs are up, and so are sales of maternity dresses. Not everything slumps downward in tough times, it seems. Elle McPherson's underwear is said to be doing well. So, too, is a budget store called Poundland. Some stories are frankly bizarre. The Crunch is alleged to have given a fillip to sales of cake, wooden gravestones, musicals, and feel-good films. The quality press has not resisted the temptation to join in the guessing game. My own newspaper, the Financial Times, found evidence that physiotherapists were in demand to perk up stressed investment bankers. All this speculation is an engaging diversion, but it tells us little. Even the more solid reports are often based on anecdotes. Many are simply spin or wishful thinking. I've heard a food retailer muse that fair trade branded goods are recession proof because once people have seen the light about the importance of fair trade, they never turn back. A travel industry expert told me that the worse things get, the more people feel in need of a vacation. Perhaps he's right. I wouldn't bet on it. I doubt that these early reports will tell us much about what will happen in the trough of this recession. One of the reasons people curtail their spending is that they lose their jobs. But many economists fear that unemployment is nowhere near as high as it's going to get over the next few months. There's plenty of scope for things to worsen on that score. Economic theory tells us a little. Consumers should cut back their spending if they believe that their earning power will fall for an extended period of time. But if they believe the hard times are temporary, say, a short period out of work, then they should smooth by borrowing in hard times and paying back when things pick up. Because of smoothing, consumption should not shrink as much as the economy does. That sounds reassuring, but Ray Barrell of the National Institute for Economic and Social Research, a London-based think tank, has two pieces of bad news. The first is that this is the wrong sort of recession. Because it was precipitated by a banking crisis, consumption may well fall much more dramatically. That's plausible. Consumers who want to smooth consumption can't borrow to do so. It's also what has happened during the 14 banking crises in various high-income countries that Beryl and his colleagues have studied. The second piece of bad news relates to the first. Because consumers were already borrowing heavily in the good times, both credit constraints and a long-overdue realism are likely to bite all the more deeply. That, too, is a tendency Beryl finds in the data. Of course, as the lucky sellers of herbal Viagra are alleged to be discovering, when consumer spending falls, some products do well and others do very badly. Nervous retailers looking for cues might wish to pick up research from the 1990s in an article by economists Martin Browning and Thomas Crossley called Shocks, Stocks, and Socks. They find that when people are unemployed, they save money in a logical way by not buying small durables such as socks and, indeed, clothes in general. In the short term, people get by and save about 15% of their household budget. When they find a new job, they replace the tired old socks. Bad news for gold tone, good news for sellers of needles and thread.
Hi, welcome to Remedial Theater. I'm Mark. And I'm Sam. You ready? <coughs> yes. This is the. Um, this will be self-explanatory. This committee is now in session. Why are you here, Big Finance? Well, uh, frankly, we need some money. Why do you need money? Well, we're too big to fail. Why are you failing, Big Finance? Uh, it's a little bit complicated. CDOs, CLOs, CSOs, SFCDOs, SPVs, MBs, CREs. Hey, a little bit weedy, but let's just agree to say it's because we gave poor people mortgages. Oh, okay. How much do you need? 350, 400 billion. Hey, let's make it a trillion. <laughs> Bingo! Oh, wait, we're going to need to send some people over to watch how you spend it. Oh, oh. oh that may be a bit of a problem. All right, all right, all right. Well, well, well we need to say we're going to send some people over to watch you how you spend it. That's more like it. In fact, we'll send you a list of who we want. Oh, that would be so helpful. Thank you for being so cooperative. Anytime. This committee is adjourned. This committee is now in session. What can we do for you, Big Auto? Well, uh, we need some money. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you need? What do you mean you need money? Well, Why? A million people will lose their jobs if we uh, if we go under. You idiots! How did this happen? Well, the finance system has failed, and so there's no credit for people who want to buy cars. How dare you blame the financial system? Take some responsibility. What the hell is wrong with you? Well, we, uh, d we did take some responsibility. We drove down in hybrid cars our second time visiting you. All right. Well, I guess that's a start. Hey, but wait, you guys have unions, right? Uh, yes, we do. Oh, well, we're, we're going to have to think about it. This committee is adjourned. Now, you know, the weird thing about this is that he drove down in a hybrid car, the CEO of Ford, I believe, and the idea that we don't, that they're not all manufacturing hybrid cars when years ago they knew they would have to shift away from the oil paradigm and that there was a way to manufacture fuel-efficient vehicles, battery-run vehicles, vehicles that uh, were at least uh, more reasonable on all levels. Now, why did that not happen? Why did something like that not happen? And this is our next topic in remedial theater. Why we don't have any battery or hybrid cars that everyone has. And obviously, we have hybrids, but the battery cars specifically. So here's how this happened. Uh, someone knocking on my door? Oh. Invited you in yet? Oh, uh, come on in. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, Mr. Big Executive, I'm d I'm down in engineering, and we got some oh, pretzels. Yeah, sure. Love Pre pretzels. Yeah, we, uh, we're I used down to have pretzels when I was a little boy. Oh, that's nice. Mm. So we're down engineering. We've got some things on the drawing board, some really exciting new plans for battery-operated vehicles, and we've got some plans for some fuel-efficient vehicles, some, something we're going to call a hybrid. And we think it would be, you know, in the years to come, something like... We're making money on SUVs right now. you have any idea how much money I make a year? A lot. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Well, well, these cars, I think if you really want to look at the future of the company, that this will be the way to do it. That if you start making fuel efficient, it's not saying... Yeah, you know, I appreciate the advice, yeah. uh, advice but, if, but if I ever hear it again, yeah. <laughs> you're fired. Yeah. I'll get out of here. Okay. I'll take these pretzels. In fact, oh, Barbara, sure, I'll make a case of pretzels. Thank you. That was very helpful and informative. There you go, folks. Uh, that's what it's all about.
You know, teenagers reach a point in their struggle to become adults where they're certain, almost positive, that anybody over the age of 30 doesn't have good sense. You know, as you look at these last eight years, it's tough to disagree. It's tough to argue with that. Most teenagers have a sense that adults are leaving them a planet that's in a much bigger mess than most teenage bedrooms. They know we're leaving them a government that could best be described as an idiocracy. The grown-ups are leaving them a quality of life that's being dismantled so quickly that they'll only be able to read about prosperity in history books. In those books, I hope we tell them the truth. I hope we tell these kids the truth about our greed and our, uh, our lack of honesty. I hope we have enough character to tell them about our thick-headed devotion to our failed political party ideology and our selfishness. I hope we tell those teenagers that we very often pulled the lever in our voting booths according to how much tax money we could save or simply whether the candidate, no matter how incompetent, was Republican or Democrat. Maybe we're even going to be honest enough to tell those teenagers that we rarely took the time to understand the background about issues and about candidates. No matter whether we tell them or not, they're going to discover all that on their own. Our teenagers are going to inherit an economic crisis that's going to cost them around $450,000 per household just to pay for the pathetic stewardship by adults these last eight years. While adults were showing lemming-like loyalty to their political parties, while we were squandering our natural resources, while we were wasting billions on a war to nowhere, the national debt clock ran out of digit spaces to fully register our adult stupidity. For our teenagers to pull out of the economic hole that we created for them, our economy would have to make giant leaps of at least 10% annual growth for decades. Historically, that's never been done. Your teenagers right now may not appreciate the significance of the economic meltdown that adults created, but most 13-year-olds already know much about what we as grown-ups have left them. They know the earth is melting. They know that more animal species are becoming extinct than any other time in modern history. They're aware that this generation of adults have done nothing to develop alternative energy sources to keep the next generation of adults alive and prosperous. These teenagers have lived through a time when religious fanaticism has overpowered science and rational thinking. They've heard all the neocon jingoism that put us here. They've lived in a world most of their lives where the presidency has been dumbed down to where leadership is not even recognizable anymore. It was adults who brought them eight years of that kind of leadership. And even today, about 45% of adults believe that it's a good idea to give their teenagers four more years of that same kind of dysfunctional stewardship. So the next time you see your teenager smirk and roll their eyes when you try to share some little slice of wisdom with them, be honest with yourself and admit for the last eight years, adults just haven't appeared to be all that wise. Will someone please call the surgeon who can crack my ribs and Economic crisis is traced to a bounce check for $16. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Forensic economists isolated the root cause of the global financial crisis today after tracing it back to area man Doug Haverbrook. Analyst Franklin Moswell told reporters today that a bad check written by Haverbrook at a liquor store in March led directly to the current global financial catastrophe. This man's failure to look at the big picture as 
has caused irreparable damage to the world economy. This just in, uh, Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson has announced an emergency cash infusion of $250 billion into Haverbrook's account to help him maintain a minimum balance. One gonna heal my body, another gonna heal my pain. One gonna settle me down and bring me back up again. One gonna put my family back together again. When I talk about posturing, we're not finished yet with Mr. Limbaugh. Limbaugh, uh, the other day, this was all on the 17th, that I was walking around the house thinking about this, and I all of a sudden realized I came up with one of those contradictions that one of those ways, something I can shove up, uh, 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 shove where the sun doesn't shine on Mr. Limbaugh, and I remembered it. I remembered something he did last Monday, and the, th the something that he did was, and we're going to play the the uh, we're going to play the uh, clip. I'm going to repeat over and over again. <laughs> Isn't that dignified? Doesn't that sound dignified, Mr. Limbaugh? That's Limbaugh uh, imitating somebody. I don't even know who he was imitating anymore. Uh, it's uh, the kind of thing that he does uh, when he is when he is snorting and sneering because he sneers. He sneers at people who are weak. He sneers at people who are impoverished. He sneers at working people. He sneers at anybody. He sneers at people. And he and by the way, and, and uh, let me give you an example. Now we're going now we're going to play that first one from uh, from August. This is from last August. If we open up this and this, I, you know, I've heard this, this, this lament from the left for 30 years now that, you know, we are 3% of the world's population and we use 25% of the world's resources. Obama's now modified that. Uh, we, um, we use 3% of the, uh, uh, we are 3% of the world's oil, but we use 25% of the world's oil. I mean, they just throw these numbers around, bandying them about. And again, we need to be punished for this. Why? We're greedy. We're selfish. We're stealing from other peoples in the world. Right. Yes, we're greedy and we're stealing from other peoples in the world. And what is, what is, what's he really saying? <laughs> that's, that's his reaction. That's his reaction to anybody who's weak, poor, that anybody who's, who's who's on the bottom, the people on the bottom, Limbaugh has one answer to the people on the bottom. <laughs> but wait, because here's the contradiction. Here's what I realized. Oh, he has, he sneers and he mocks people on the bottom. But what happens? And, but when do, and will, will, does Limbaugh ever say anything? Will, will Limbaugh ever say anything, anything against the boss? What, will a rich man, does he ever say anything about a rich? No, never, never does it. Ne never does. He will sneer and snort and imitate and mock. And look down his nose at people on the bottom. But what happens? What happens when Lim? And by the way, Limbaugh will tell you about his trials and tribulations. He will tell you about how he's been fired from seven or eight jobs and how he's lived out of his car. Now, I learned, I don't know if he said this, but at, at one point when he was about 36, 35, 36 years old, he was uh, selling hot dogs uh, for the Kansas City Royals at their baseball games. That's what he was reduced to doing, but he didn't complain because, you know, life, he says, isn't fair. 
You know, that's what he'll tell you. Life isn't fair. Are you a conservative out there? Do you agree with Limbaugh that life isn't fair? But guess what Limbaugh says? And, but you know, here next year, he might have to pay, instead of paying 36% of his income, instead of paying 36% of the upper, a high end of his income, the $50 million a year that he gets paid, instead of making paying 36% on the high end of that, he's going to have to pay 39%. And what is his reaction? <laughs> yeah, you big crybaby. You big crybaby. Life isn't fair, Mr. Limbaugh. Yeah, yeah, tell us about it. Life is, is life supposed to be fair, Mr. Limbaugh? Is it supposed to be fair for rich people? Is that your problem? Is it not? You don't mind if life's not fair as long as it's fair to people like you who are people like you who need it the least. As long as she's life supposed to be fair for you once you become a millionaire, but it wasn't supposed to be fair, I don't understand how you can say, well, life's not fair, and then, and then do this. <laughs> because your tax rate's going from 36 to 39%. I have seen peace. I've seen pain resting on the shoulders of your name. Do you see the truth through all their lies? Do you see the world through troubled eyes? And if you second Tuesday of the month and you know what that means. It's time for our depressing news riddle. What's what's black and white and completely over? Give up? It's newspapers. Wow, that is depressing. Why do we keep doing this segment? Many of the nation's newspapers are on the brink of collapse. Media giant, the Tribune Company, which publishes 10 daily newspapers. The group owns the Chicago Tribune and Los Angeles Times. Now filing for bankruptcy. What about the smaller papers? How are they faring? The Rocky Mountain News has put itself up for sale. The Baltimore Sun may actually be in great, great peril. The Orange County Register, Houston Chronicle, all fell more than 10% in the last six months. The Newark pedophile on its last legs. The Cincinnati dump accompaniment also down. And of course, the Minneapolis liar. Even the gray, ultra-liberal, sodomy-loving lady that elites call the New York Times is in trouble. This week, the Times announced it would take out a $225 million mortgage on its mid-Manhattan headquarters building. This after an earlier plan to lease the structure as a jungle gym for French douchebags. <laughs> Proved unprofitable. So, the New York Times' response to a fiscal crisis brought on by irresponsible mortgages is to take out another mortgage. Mm, do they read their paper? But the printed words, true arch nemesis, turns out to be none other than the Internet! Just trying to add a little drama there. Beats reading, am I right? Classified advertising, which used to make up roughly half of ad revenue, is evaporating as websites such as Craigslist offer online classifieds for free. Well, then that's understandable. I mean, online ads are cheaper, they receive wider distribution, and perhaps most importantly, many newspapers still stubbornly refuse to place classified ads like 57-year-old man looking for no strings attached. Female scat gangbang. Please be height weight appropriate near the 2-3 subway line. And of course, as always, no freaks!
Unfortunately. Now, there's two things going on. We want to uh, shift the gears here a little bit. You know, because we've been talking about this auto uh, bailout for yeah. some time. You know, the big story we've been hearing for the past month is that UAW workers get $70 an hour. Uh, All over the place, that story. Everywhere. And, of course, it turns out to be a lie. The way that that figure is derived, it's the salary, the uh, wages that UAW workers earn right now, uh, which is about 29 bucks an hour, mm -hmm. uh, plus all of the legacy costs that, G uh, that GM has. Um, you know, they've got to pay for the health care and the pension benefits, that they, but they basically take that as one lump sum and then divide it by the amount of workers that are working there now. So it's, it's sort of a fraudulent calculation. Yes. Uh, but as we're talking about pensions, there's a story that uh, came out in Bloomberg yesterday that uh, pension funds at all these big corporations, Pfizer, IBM, UPS, a dozen others, are basically knocking on uh, Congress's door asking them for relief this, from... This is not part of the bailout, though. This is, no, a, this separate, is, this is a separate pension helper. Pension program. helper. They yeah. basically, uh, because uh, pensions used to fail and workers would get screwed, the uh, U.S. government started a, uh, a, a, an act called the ERISA Act in 1974. Employment Retirement Income Security Act. act. Very good. I'm going to have a little nicotine to reward myself. <laughs> they did this in 1974 to make sure that pensions were there and that, you know, this is a promise given to workers, make sure that there have uh, been proper Oversight and regulation. Exactly. Yes. And now these corporations basically want a break from this because, well, to explain, I think what we need to do is whip out... Go into Mark and Sam's remedial... Um, what do we call it? Remedial theater? theater? Yes. Uh, I'm going to have to take that. Uh... Put this down. We ready? Here we go. Okay. Hey, boss man, I want $40 an hour. Uh, we can't afford to pay you $40 an hour. Hey, look, man, I need the money. I need to save for my future, my golden years. Tell you what, we'll give you $29 an hour, and we'll give you a pension equi equivalent of about $400 a week, guaranteed pension after you retire. Wow, that sounds great. Let's shake on it. Okay. Hello, accountant? Yes. Great news. Uh -huh. We're able to pay our workers $29 an hour. Wow. That is a great job. How'd you manage that? Well, we promised them a pension of $400 a week when uh -huh. they retire. Uh -huh. How much do we need to save in order to do that? Well, let me see. Let me do the numbers. Tick, 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 tick. Well, to be safe, you should assume uh, only a 5% return, so you should save, click, 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 that's calculator, about $5 a week. Ooh, $5 a week, that's a little steep. What if we assume a 12% return? Oh, hold on a second. Click, 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 click. Well, that's not a very safe assumption, but that would only cost you $2 a week. That's what we're talking about. $2 it is. I've retired. Can I have my pension, please? Ugh. Hold on. Uh, let me make a call. Accountant? Yes. How's our pension fund looking? Oh, severely underfunded. How'd that happen? Well, I told you you shouldn't have relied on a 12% return. Uh, now it looks like you got to cut into your operating budget. Shit! This is going to hurt our stock value. And that's going to affect my pay package. All right, got to run. Hello, I've been on hold for years. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, years. yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, guess what, we can't pay you. Huh? Yeah, uh, this is why this country's having such trouble. You are all insisting on these pensions. It's not our fault, but uh, we don't got the money. Now, if we pay you uh, your pension, it's like we're paying $70 an hour for all our workers. Wait till Fox News hears about this. Hey, can you hold again? No, I can't hold on again. Fox News, how can we help you hurt people? Fucking unions. Fucking unions. Okay, thanks. We'll run with it. Thanks. Hello? Yeah, don't put me on hold again. All right, don't put me on hold again. You said we had a deal, you know, way back when. You remember you said it would work out for both of us. Remember, you promised. This is why U.S. industries can't be competitive. We have to take so much of our operating money to give out for your freaking pensions. Wait, wait, wait a second. The, the, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 says you've got to keep our pensions fully funded. 
Oh, yeah. Arisa, thanks for reminding us about that. Uh, can you hold on again? No, no, I can't. He hello? Hi, Congress? Yeah. You know how that ERISA Act says we have to keep pensions funded to up to like 90%? Yes. Yes, I do. It's very important. You made an obligation to your workers basically saying that you would give them deferred payments. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Except for the stock market. Hello? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we have to fully fund these pensions, it's going to make us less competitive. It's like we're paying our workers $70 an hour. Wow. Yes, 70 an hour. I heard that on Fox today. That's rough. Hey, uh, any chance you can uh, suspend this ERISA? Uh, well, if it's going to make you less competitive, hmm, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, let me connect you to my chief fundraiser for my next re-election, and we'll take what you're asking for under advisement. So wheat. Hello? 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 Dance with me. I want to be a partner. Starting night is calling, and I am falling. Dance with me. Fantasy could never be so killing. I feel free. I hope that you are willing. Pick the beat up and kick your feet up. Dance with me. I love this. I think this story is so full of irony, I can't get enough of it. You know how the economy's taking a downturn. Who's going to help us, of course? Uh, the Christian right. They're going to get together and pray on it, and then it's all going to get fixed. But here's the funny part. They decided to pray literally at the golden bull in front of Wall Street. And they called it the day of prayer for the world's economies. And they wanted God to take over the economy. Now, that seems kind of strange if you ask me. It seems like uh, some sort of socialism or something with God taking over the economy. I don't know what he'd do with it if he did. But look at this picture. Has anyone read the Bible? You know, praying to a golden calf? <laughs> a golden calf? I mean, look at them. I'm surprised God didn't smite them on the in instantly. Looks down and goes, are these some of my bitches at it again? Hey, I'm going to have to strike their asses down again to set up a lesson here. Seriously, how could you be into this prayer circle and the prayer and the Christian and da-da-da, and you never read the damn Bible? This is in the Ten Commandments. Do not pray on to other things. And here you are in front of a golden bull saying, Give me more money, God. Give me more money. Money, money, money. Day of the prayer for the world's economies. Man, some fools just don't get it, man. They're an embarrassment. If you're, if you're a Christian, you've got to be really embarrassed at that. And if you're not, you just laugh and you go, man, some people just don't understand the damn thing in the world. And that's what I'm talking about. I, I honestly believe that I understand the Bible a hell of a lot more than 90% of Christians do. Because I bother reading a lot of it. I, I don't think they have. How can you miss the golden calf? It's all over the Bible. Unbelievable. All right. I'm going to let it go. But that is wins the Irony Award by a long shot for, for the week. Here they are. Here. The whole time I'm watching this video, I'm thinking lightning is going to come down any second. Because if you believe in God, these guys are in a world of trouble. By the way, there's also the slight additional irony of God bless America. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus didn't talk about America. He exactly. was not in favor of nationalism. Mm -hmm. He was like, put everything down and join the Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't want you to pray to Caesar. He didn't want you to have worship of a nation. 
what am I going to do with these folks, really? And let alone the part of the Bible that talks about how a rich man cannot get into, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven mm -hmm. than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And that's, you know, that's a well-known one. But there are many other parts of the Bible where it says very clearly, if you are rich, you are shit out of luck. You are not getting into heaven, okay? It's not going to happen for you. And these people are praying for money in front of a golden bull singing about America. <laughs> The people who just didn't get the Bible, okay, didn't get the memo. Wow. All right. And that's how much this religion, you know, whether you like it or don't like it, believe in it or don't believe in it, it has been perverted. I mean, that is the American perversion of Christianity. African Union summit closed on Tuesday. Leaders who met in Egypt talked about Zimbabwe's presidential problem. They also talked about Africa's food problem. The World Bank estimates that rising food costs will create, quote, a daily struggle for more than 2 billion people and threaten to push some 100 million people into poverty. Analysts agree the problem hits Africans particularly hard. Meanwhile, aid agencies are moving tons of U.S. food aid into North Korea. The world's largest retailer, Walmart, announced it will be buying more produce from local growers in order to cut down on shipping costs. Investigators from the Food and Agriculture Organization and the U.N. have touched down in Pakistan to study that country's food crisis. And World Bank Group President Robert Zelik called on G8 leaders and oil producers to act now, saying the world is entering a danger zone regarding food and energy prices. Far from fad diets and Rachel Ray, food has become the political and economic issue. Paul Roberts, author of The End of Food, is here to assess whether American journalists are ready to cover it. First, are reporters even using the right terms? What do we mean when we say food crisis? The most immediate definition is that prices are a lot higher than they were even a year ago. In places where they're spending, you know, 70 and 80 percent of their household dollars on food, a doubling and tripling of the price of rice and corn and wheat is disastrous. Kind of more broadly, we've got issues of populations that aren't just getting bigger but are wealthy enough to eat more meat, which, because it's so resource-intensive, geometrically increases the demand for grain. You throw in a drought in Australia, poor crop in Canada, and on top of that, you throw in, you know, the new demand for biofuels, and you really have this perfect storm that really caught the world by surprise, or at least the Western world, where we kind of thought hunger had been taken care of. Now, before I make the decision for all of the media to allocate more resources at a time of dramatic retrenchment in the news business, tell me how critical is the crisis. Is this a transitory event, or is this a, an issue that is likely to bedevil the world for the foreseeable future? I think it is a long-term and a very complex problem. It's not going to be resolved soon. It's not going to resolve itself by some, you know, market magic. And I think that it's going to become, in terms of, a, you know, a journalistic discipline, it's going to become the beat of the future. So we're going to have a long time to perfect our skills reporting on this. Periodically, we'll see food safety stories in the U.S. press. And we occasionally see coverage of genetically modified foods. But at least until recently, you just had never seen anything to do with the food supply. Is there any infrastructure in the media for covering the economy of food? There isn't really a, a level of expertise or a, a discipline that centers on food. To the extent that food is covered in the media, it's primarily about kind of in the Martha Stewart vein. You know, it's about cooking shows, it's diet, it's nutrition. Food safety, of course, in the past two years has become an issue, and there's been sort of a surge in the development of expertise among journalists and a lot of good writing, finally, about food safety. But, like, you're right, what we haven't 
come to grips with yet until recently has been the notion that we might be short of food. And, and that's, I think, taking a while for the media to really get its head around. If journalists in the United States are kind of lagging on this subject, is, is there an example elsewhere in the world where people are covering the crisis exactly right? Um, I don't know if anyone's covering exactly right. I think the Europeans, they're in the middle of a lot of these issues, so they've had more experience. Regardless of whether you're in Europe or, or the U.S., the media really, it's, it's sort of experience in terms of reporting on food crises has been focusing on regional food crisis. It's sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, back in the 70s, it was India. So those were local dysfunction. It was bad policy. It was corruption. And what's new, very new and significant about the current crisis is that it's global. It's affecting everyone, although not to the same degree. And it's being driven in part by policies of industrialized governments. So, and I think reporters and policymakers alike need to get up to speed on the science, but we also need to have the confidence to not allow the stakeholders to frame the issue themselves. I'm glad you raised the issue of what exactly the press should be doing, because there's really kind of two ways to cover a story like this. You know, five or six day series, and you give it a title, Hungry for Solutions, or some such. The other way to cover a story is to create beats and to bring various disciplines of economics and science and politics to bear on an ongoing story. Is there any evidence that that second path is being followed by anybody? Yes, there is evidence. In the same way that oil is now a beat, I think food is going to emerge. It's probably going to be some of the same reporters because they will have developed some expertise in reporting on resources, on commodities markets, on financial complexities of commodities generally, and it won't be too hard to make the jump. I mean, energy is energy, you know, whether it's calories or kilowatts. Uh, I look at papers like the New York Times is actually doing a pretty good job. It's got an ongoing series. Um, I believe it's the food chain. They just did this great story on how hedge funds are now investing in farm infrastructure and kind of asking, well, is that good or bad? So the fact that a, a mainstream news organization is not only alerting us to the fact that this is going on, but is starting to examine it critically is, is a really encouraging sign. Paul, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're welcome. Paul Roberts is the author of, most recently, The End of Food. falls deeper into recession and teeters on the edge of depression, those who've lost their jobs and those who fear they'll be next are finding some unwelcome company lurking around the house. Here's our humorist Brian Unger with today's Unger Report. The wolf is at the door. Actually, the wolf has broken down the door. He's lying on your couch, eating the last can of beans from your pantry and running up your cable bill by watching pay-per-view. Worst of all, He's shedding. But who is the wolf who's intruded into your life? Well, let's start with the leader of the pack. It could be your president, your governor, your mayor. But most likely, the wolf on your couch is a senior executive from a company that just announced it's shutting down a plant, closing an office, or laying off workers. Not content with that, he's now eating your lunch. The people who run this country and the people who run the companies that keep this country running have failed us as leaders. They can't even figure out the navigation system in their Maserati. They forgot, while they were lining their pockets, that the workers who were producing their wealth deserved a little of it too. And now that things have gone south, why is it that accountability means that the guy on the assembly line or in the back room or the storeroom floor gets the axe? and the executives responsible just get to cover their own axes. Ordinary Americans get angry when a wolf is eating their lunch, and ordinary Americans have a strong sense of right and wrong and of justice. If too many of those folks see too many wolves continuing to thrive while they suffer, things could get ugly. 
fast. So here's some advice to the executives who thought good leadership just meant wearing very expensive shoes. First, put on some sheep's clothing. Park or sell the car that is worth more than the homes your workers live in. Start flying commercial. Cut your salary and bonuses from 700 times what your average worker makes to maybe 10. Learn to be contrite. And before you close an office, shutter a plant or fire a worker and tear apart the social fabric of the nation. Imagine a big, ugly group of those fired workers swarming into your penthouse or occupying your little 26-bedroom getaway in the Hamptons. Do you really want those people in your pool? You made things worse. You can make things better. A man who knew something about leadership, Dr. Martin Luther King, once said, The time is always right to do what is right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for hanging in with us as we continue our uh, choppy and uncertain schedule, uh, as we will continue to do through the rest of the year. And, I, you know, I'm sure you understand the reasons for that. So thanks for your patience and uh, enough said about that. Again, I just wanted to mention about the Polar Bear Plunge fundraiser that I'll be taking part in in the beginning of January. Again, this is basically the same idea as a fun run or a walk for the cure type of event where we get sponsors and pledges to to support us in our crazy activity you know in, instead of us doing a, a, a 5k run we only run you know 20 yards or so but we end up in the freezing cold water of the chesapeake bay in the middle of january so that that is our big event that we use at my nonprofit organization the chesapeake Co- climate action network to raise money for the work that we do each year and you know so we've been doing great work in the states of maryland dc and virginia and you know maybe you think if if you're not in that region that our work doesn't affect you and and so you wouldn't be so inclined to support it but uh, keep this in mind being right next to uh, washington dc we have unprecedented easy access to the, the the national government obviously so just as a quick example about a week ago, the big three car manufacturers were here for their uh, little chat with Congress talking about the bailout for the car companies, and our response to that was to get about 25 hybrid car owners to join us down in front of the Capitol and drive in circles to uh, and basically put on a hybrid car parade, and it was obviously just a, a media stunt to... Uh, to get the media out there and get our message across and it totally worked by the way we had about 15 media outlets including major television networks uh, all on down the line and basically our message was if we're going to be giving any federal tax dollars to the big three car companies to bail them out then not only do they need to get serious about improving the uh, fuel efficiency of their cars and and really change the way that they've been doing things but they need to stop suing the states in, in the country that have passed clean cars bills insisting that cars in their states have a uh, higher fuel efficiency than the federal standard. So it, it wouldn't be surprising at all if you weren't aware of that, but the car companies are actually suing 15 states to prevent them from being able to pass laws and, and enforce these laws to get clean cars in their states and obviously for Detroit to be saying that they're rededicating themselves to the green movement and and making they're going to start making these great hybrid and electric and fuel cell cars while at the same time continuing to sue these states over that exact issue just doesn't make sense so you know our little nonprofit that works just in our region actually reached out and, and made a big impact and uh, and caught the attention of the media for this national issue. So that being said, uh, maybe that'll encourage you a little bit to help support the work we do and support me freezing my ass off, jumping into freezing cold water to uh, to support the, the work of, of my office. All you have to do is go to the website, bestofleft.com, 
and you'll see right at, at the top of the homepage, you'll see the details about the fundraiser, as well as a little video from last year's plunge that I happened to produce myself. I shot the video and then edited it all together afterwards. So that's fun. It'll give you an idea of what the event's like and, and how much fun it is and, and what a great cause it is. And that is that. And that is it for today. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Just a phone friend, I want to a friend